Let me first of all point out that Malky was a child and I was her father. And that creates a lot of desire to try to do whatever you can do after you've failed to keep her safe, to ensure that she's not forgotten. Fighting for justice has become more and more of an imperative as I've watched the mas fatayim, the lip service being paid by a whole range of public officials in three countries, Israel, Jordan, and the United States. Uh, as I've seen what in some circles are called the empty suits, the people with big positions, but without too much integrity inside. I call them the, uh, the empty kipot because so many of them are people who pray at the same times and in the same direction as I do. And yet for all of their rhetoric, don't seem to understand just how complicit they are in doing something that has terrible consequences. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com, I'm Scott Kahn. Malki Roth was a 15-year-old girl living in Jerusalem. And on August 9th, 2001, she was murdered when a suicide bomber blew up the Sabaro restaurant on the corner of King George and Jaffa. That area of Jerusalem was chosen because lots of Jews, and specifically Jewish children, would likely be there. And tragically, that was accurate. The person who, in a sense, masterminded this operation was a 21-year-old named Achlam Tamimi, who was soon arrested by Israel and ultimately sentenced to 16 life terms for the murder that she committed. Yet today, she is a celebrity, living a free and charmed life in Jordan, a media sensation, completely unrepentant. Even more, she says, she would absolutely do the same thing again. There are videos where she recounts how many people she murdered, how many children she killed. The joy in her eyes and the smile on her face are chilling. Malki's parents... Arnold and Frimit Roth, have been working tirelessly to bring Tamimi to justice. And it was my honor and privilege to speak to Arnold today. Arnold Roth, thank you very much for joining me today on the podcast. Good morning, Scott. I'm glad to be here. On August 9th, 2001, almost exactly 20 years ago, you and your family suffered an almost impossible tragedy. A suicide bomber walked into the Sabaro restaurant in central Yushalayim on the corner of King George Street and Jaffa Road. He detonated a bomb in his guitar case. 15 people were murdered. 130 were injured. Among those who were killed was your daughter, Malki, who was only 15 years old. I'm sure that pain is something which is absolutely unimaginable. It must be something you suffer constantly. So first of all, I am sorry for your loss. I'm sure all of my listeners join me in feeling sorry for your loss. And I thank you for talking with me today. I want to say how important it is for me to speak. I grab every opportunity that I possibly can and... The reason is entirely pragmatic. We're on a mission to get the bomber put on trial and eventually put into prison in the United States. And that's really the story that I feel compelled to tell as often as I can because it's so little known. We're going to speak about that extensively today. I'd like to start off asking about your daughter, Malki. Can you tell me a few things about Malki? Malki was the first daughter in our family after three boys and the last of our children to be born in Australia where we lived uh, and from where we made Aliyah in 1988. She then uh, was followed by three sisters all born here in Yerushalayim so that Malki called herself the meat in the sandwich uh, between the three boys and three girls. She was 
only 15 and a half at the end of her life, so that it seems a little far-fetched for me to be talking about what sort of a character and uh, what her legacy was, but she actually had a character that was really worth talking about, and I'll just take a minute, a moment, to say that she was a balat chesed, a young lady who understood the, the, the precious value of doing good for other people even when you weren't going to be compensated. It was something that shone from her. She was uh, famous among her friends for this. And at home, she was, uh, as my wife says, my angel. Uh, my wife uh, called her my angel. Hmm. Uh, this largely stems from the fact that the youngest of our children was born absolutely perfect and beautiful like our other children. But at the age of one, uh, suffered um, a catastrophic series of um, issues in hospital, things that leave us pretty angry until today. Um, but the result was that she's blind and uh, completely incapable of communicating and of uh, looking after herself and is in need of support 24-7. And Malky stepped in and became uh, my wife from its indispensable helper and totally devoted to her little sister, adored her, and uh, the, the love uh, just shone from her. In the scheme of things, this isn't even something so big, but it just touched me when I saw recently a picture in an article that you wrote on Barry Weiss's blog, a picture of Malky's phone, a red Nokia phone that was found in the wreckage. And at the bottom, she had written in her own handwriting on that phone, Asur le Daber Lashon Hara, it is forbidden to speak derogatory speech. And I thought that for a 15-year-old to write that on her phone is something that speaks to something very, very special in her. I can only agree with you. Uh, you look closely at that photograph and you also see little ladybugs that she uh, drew on the phone. So she was a 15-year-old with all of the interests and uh, and um, outlooks on life that you expect from an, a child of that age. But her, her passion for chesed and for doing right by people and doing whatever she could to help was really quite striking. Let's speak about the other topic that you mentioned. I'm going to mention what happened that day when the suicide bomber went to the location of the attack. He was accompanied by a student of journalism named Akhlam Tamimi, a Jordanian citizen who was then living in the West Bank. As I understand it, the reason they went together was in order to help them look like a young Israeli couple so that they wouldn't be found out by the security forces, they wouldn't be seemingly suspicious. And once they successfully reached central Yushalayim, having evaded security, they went into that corner right by the, right by the Sabaro, at which point... Tamimi left to go back to the Damascus Gate in order to get a bus back to Ramallah. And her partner in terrorism then obviously detonated his bomb. And Tamimi went back to Ramallah because she also worked as a newsreader on Palestinian television, which brings up one of the most ironic things imaginable. I'm going to quote you something that you wrote in that article you wrote in Barry Weiss's site. A video clip of her, Tamimi, presenting that night's news bulletin on Al Istaklal TV may be the only instance in the annals of television where an atrocity was reported by the perpetrator. Later, Tamimi spoke of how hard it was to suppress the jubilation that the deaths and injuries of Jews, especially Jewish children, aroused within her. So Arnold, if it's okay, could you describe Tamimi's role in the operation? Because she was more obviously than just an escort, correct? I'm glad you said that. And sometimes she's erroneously described as the driver, but uh, she didn't drive, they weren't driven. And that wasn't her role. She, as she describes it today, years later, was the mastermind of the operation. She calls it my operation, and it's a justified term. She selected the site on behalf of Hamas. It was her second uh, murderous uh, terrorist act in the space of a week. 
She had been in Jerusalem a week earlier with a booby-trapped beer can, which she placed inside the supermarket underneath what used to be Hamashbir Tzarchan on King George, just uh, 200 meters away from the Sabaro corner. Um, that that uh, beer can, uh, in a certain way, failed. It exploded, but didn't kill anybody. Um, she says that it killed many people and brought the whole building down. She has said that for the record in the Arabic media. It's pure invention. The reality is that she left there enraged at having been let down by the Hamas people and demanded the right to do a, 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 a do-over, do the thing again in a different location. She picked Sabaro, as she says, because of the large number of children there. And the hour, which was two o'clock, was picked for the very same reason. This was all about murdering children. It's unbelievable, but this is the kind of woman that she was. She was 21 years old. So she wasn't the driver and she wasn't the accompaniment and she wasn't the partner. Uh, it was her mission. It was the young man, the human bomb, who didn't go there in order to commit suicide, but to commit murder. Uh, suicide was a matter of indifference to him. Uh, he was already promised by the people who had been pumping his head full of Islamist zealotry, the idea that he was going straight to wherever they go and uh, enjoying the pleasures of wherever that is, um, had no interest in any aspect of what he was doing except for the dead Jews that he was going to, um, he was going to, they're going to be left behind, the murders he was going to carry out. She, as you say, had fled the scene and was already in a taxi heading back to Ramallah when the word came through on the radio of, uh, first of all, the fact of the explosion and then the death toll, and she was at first subdued, as she says herself, and then jubilant. By the time they got to Ramallah, everybody around her was jubilant, including the Palestinian police who handed out candies as they entered the city. And she was subdued, as I understand it, not because of any moral qualms, but because she thought that not enough people had been killed. Is that correct? It's correct. And let me just inter inter interject with a, a question that was asked by a commentator on a video that I have here who says, did you think about the victims? And she takes a moment to Ke'ilu think and then says, yes, it was tragic that Isadin al-Masri, the human bomb, had died, but he was happy and he did what he wanted to do. Didn't you feel anything about the Jewish victims? She pauses for a dramatic moment. She's quite, quite self-possessed and says, no. Unreal. Now, she was soon arrested and jailed in Israel. But as is obvious, she is a free woman today in Amman, Jordan. She's a celebrity. In order to get to how that happened, I want to start talking about the movie Hot House, which you might have just referred to right now. Could you tell me what that film was? It's a film that uh, was successful enough to be described with photographs on the front page of the art section of the New York Times back in, I guess it was 2004. And it focuses on what makes the people inside Israeli prisons who have engaged in uh, bombings and in some cases uh, human bombings special and she's she's the star because she was only 21 when she did this so she would have been 24 or 25 when they photographed her and there's a certain attractiveness about this monster that captured the photographer's attention and uh, and so she is really the story behind uh, Hot House a movie which I've only ever seen in segments I, I've, I've avoided sitting right through it um, the, the uh, whole phenomenon of uh, of not only of the people who did this kind of thing, but of the uh, intense, I would call it pornographic, interest that people take in trying to peer into their lives and into their motivations leaves me uh, really, really cold. In any event, it has to be remembered that the movie was made inside an Israeli prison. So uh, there are people in the Israeli prison system and, and around the Israeli prison system who don't understand 
what a catastrophic mistake they have made in helping to create a platform uh, for some of the more charismatic of these monsters. That's exactly what they did. It's unforgivable. Certainly no uh, families of the victims were ever asked what their opinion was. Um, but Tamimi was already identified then as somebody uh, who was charismatic enough to get the attention of the media. And in fact, I watched a clip of it where the interviewer asked her, do you know how many children were killed? And she says, three. And he says, no, it's eight. And you see the the joy, the smile on her face. Now, presumably, that was all acting on her part. I have oh, a hard I'm time. glad you said yeah. that. You're absolutely right. It's total fakery. Of course, she knew how many she murdered. She sat through a murder trial where she confessed to all the charges. She knows why she was sentenced to 16 terms of life imprisonment. It was because there were 15 people who were murdered outright and a 16th person who's been brain damaged and unconscious from that day until today. So, no, it was all a performance. She's quite a performer. 16 life terms. And yet things changed with the Gilad Shalit deal. So what happened there? This is something that I find very difficult to talk about. Uh, not that I'm afraid to talk about it, but it's, I'm afraid that it's just not well understood. The Gilad Shalit transaction was a catastrophe for the Jewish people. Uh, many Jews, many Israelis have been murdered in the aftermath by the people who walked free then. Hamas is today totally controlled by people who walked free in the Shalit deal. Uh, this was a catastrophic mistake done uh, by the person who wrote the, the textbook on what you do when the, when the terrorists come making demands. The author of that book, Bibi Netanyahu, made a lot of money out of the book in, 90, in the late 1990s by saying you don't give in to them ever. And at the very first test in his own personal career, he did not only the opposite, but something so catastrophic that it is beyond my comprehension. Be all of that as it may, the fact is that she walked free along with 1,026 other uh, terrorists. And though the Israeli media never, ever said it up until today, most of them, the majority of them, were murderers, people with, as the Hebrew expression goes, blood on their hands. She then returned to Jordan to an illustrious career as an icon and a symbol of terrorism as a redemption. Just before we get to her life in Jordan, do you have any explanation for why Bibi Netanyahu went against his own principles? I read that book as well about 20 years ago. It was his book about fighting terrorism, and he says, do not ever give in to terrorists. Someone might defend Bibi by saying, well, once you're sitting in the prime minister's chair, you see things differently, and perhaps he has a, a broader view of things he hadn't known once upon a time. You obviously say that's not true. How would you understand why he did it? I, 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 I won't go there. Uh, th thanks very much for putting the dichotomy out there for people to ponder. Uh, I'm not a fan of any politician who says one thing and then does the exact opposite, but of that I think I should leave the point. Okay. Fair enough. So as you said, she left Israel after having been released. She was bused to Cairo, flown to Jordan as a Jordanian citizen. She was received with high honors by members of the government. She was essentially turned into a celebrity there in Jordan. What happened to her life from that point onward, from the Gilad Shalit deal and on, once she became a celebrity terrorist effectively in Jordan? So without going to all of the details, I can only, because it will take us too long, I can summarize it by saying that it's been a spectacular career, onwards, upwards, and ever more influential. And we, we should be afraid of all of the words that I just used. She stands for nothing other than the redemptive value of murdering Jews. She urges other people to do it. She has never shown neither remorse nor regret nor, nor any sense of moral stain. 
in Jordanian terms within the Arab world, she's never even referred to as a prisoner, like all of these the terrorists who, who get set free or even those who are still in prison. They're referred to as detainees. When you stop somebody in the street and prevent them from going into a department store because you're afraid that some harm will come, they're being detained. When a person is put on trial, and in her case, confesses to all of the uh, offences, the murders, with a big smile on her face, that person is not a detainee. That's a security prisoner who's been sentenced to multiple terms of life imprisonment and should never be free. So that message has never been conveyed to the Jordanian people or to the Arab world in general. She is a hero who overcame the Zionist oppression. She was detained until even the Zionists couldn't keep her where they had put her and they released her because they knew it was the right thing to do. And as she says herself, God wanted me to do what I did and I'm urging you to do the same. These horrible, horrible, horrible ideas. Absolutely horrific. You alluded to something right now, something which she says, and it's obviously false, that the Zionists had no choice but to release her. But there's something about what she said there, which I'm not going to say it contains a kernel of truth, but there's something strange, I'll say, about the way that the Israeli government has reacted and acted ever since her release. I'm going to give one example. She got married to a certain other prisoner who had also been released in the Gilad Shalit swap. He was also a terrorist murderer. And there was a logistical problem. She was in Jordan and not allowed to enter the West Bank. He was in the West Bank and not allowed to leave the state of Israel or the West Bank into Jordan. And so it seemed that their attempt to get married would be thwarted. But in the end, he was allowed to leave the West Bank and enter Jordan. And it turned out, as I understand it, having read David Horowitz's article about that in the Times of Israel, that the people trying to get him not to leave the West Bank wasn't even Israel. It was actually Jordan. It's such a strange thing, if that is, if I'm understanding it correctly. Why is Israel not caring about what's happening to her? That's the part which just doesn't seem to make any sense to me. What can I say? It goes even several steps beyond. First of all, you're, you've done a better job than any interviewer I've ever met in, in coming prepared and understanding some of the nuances here, which are terribly painful. Um, my wife and I sued the government of Israel and sought an injunction on the day that we discovered he was at the Jordan, at the King Abdullah Bridge and had been stopped, not by Israel, exactly as you say, but by the Jordanians. We sought an injunction. We were urged to wait. Three days after we began waiting, I called my lawyer and I said, we're being made fools of. Go in front of the judges now. And at that point, we learned that the uh, man had been set free by the Israeli side three days earlier. In other words, we'd been held there uh, like clowns and made fools of. So he arrived in Jordan three days before while we were still standing waiting for a judge. And several weeks later, they had a spectacular live telecast wedding in Jordan. What makes people do this kind of thing? I, I, every insight that I've gained coming from conversations that I've had with people who were involved in the decision making or in the, in the building of an alibi for it, uh, makes no sense to me. And therefore, I, I don't even want to share the airwaves with, with ideas that I think are just preposterous. Ultimately, what it comes down to is that the passionate opposition to terrorism is, uh, when it's expressed by political figures, often a total fake. That Those aren't pleasant words to hear, and they don't make me seem like a gentle soul, uh, but they're based on a lot of really, really bitter experience. Everybody pays lip service to the idea that we have to do everything, everything, everything to stop the terrorists. And in the end, we do colossally catastrophic deals which ensure that the terrorists are back in circulation and doing more harm. I have to imagine that you need to be somebody who lives behind uh, bodyguards in order to even 
formed the idea in your own head, but that already gets me into a, a, a position that I, I don't want to take. All I can say is, like you, I'm puzzled. And it's not just that they don't seem to care about terrorism. If I could be very blunt in a very tragic way, they don't seem to care about you or your family. Over and over, from what I've read, they basically didn't contact you, ignored letters, and so on and so forth, which is unforgivable. Uh, it's literally true. Uh, the unforgivable part is value judgment. Um, I happen to share it, but uh, I understand people who don't. Uh, we wrote letters that were delivered into the hand of the then Prime Minister, Bibi Netanyahu, and until today, I've never gotten an acknowledgement. I'd go a step further and say that on the day that Malki was murdered, Bibi Netanyahu was not Prime Minister, but he was a businessman who was traveling, and he happened to be in Melbourne, Australia, which is where I was born and where Malki was born. And naturally, the interest of the Australian journalists was such that he was uh, cornered and asked, do you have anything to say? This is a story which has an Australian resonance. And he said something along the lines of, my heart goes out to the victims, and as soon as I come back to Jerusalem, I will go and visit them and comfort them and all of the rest. As it happens, his wife's family uh, used to uh, be members of uh, a synagogue where I spent a lot of time for the last 30 years up until we moved out of that neighborhood. And uh, he actually came into our synagogue on the, uh, on the eve of Rosh Hashanah and the eve of Pesach. I never expected that he would ever make contact and I've never been disappointed. He certainly never did. The problem though is a lot larger. We're trying now to get the, the, the terrorist put on trial in the United States. We've been trying to do this since virtually the day after the Shalit deal. And as hard as it is for me to say this, a large part of what is preventing this from happening emanates from Israel. The details I'm really not going to share, and not because I can't, and not because the, the facts aren't searing, but because there are some, there's some strategic value in not talking too openly about this, so long as we're in the process. As you know, the King of Jordan is in Washington, is in the United States right now. We have a lot riding on the efforts that we're making, and we're only a few weeks away from the 20th anniversary. Uh, and on top of it, you mentioned the Barry Weiss uh, article, we have just revealed something that we've only known for a relatively short period of time, that in making its argument against handing her over to the Americans, the Jordanian government uh, invented facts. I'll use uh, some diplomatic language, invented facts. And we want that to have some impact. We want the people who have been saying to us in that patronizing way all these years, well, Mr. Roth, we can't really get the Jordanians to do something that's against their law. Uh, this is all nonsense, and people want that nonsense so badly to be true because somehow the king with the slight British lilt to his English and the nice-looking wife and the moderate outlook, this is something that just eats me alive. Uh, Jordan is one of the most anti-Semitic places on the face of the earth. It teaches its children anti-Semitism as a breakthrough study by the Anti-Defamation League documented just several months ago. And it's a place where Akhlam Tamimi is not only popular, she is said to be so popular that if the king allows her to be taken away by the FBI, the kingdom will fall and so will the sky. It's very hard to live with the, the, the nonsense that people have willingly bought into in order to reach a conclusion that really our good friends in Jordan need to be protected from uh, people like the Roths. All right, so I want to get back to that in just a moment. Before we leave what happened with Israel, I want to call out one particular politician who was an exception. I'm not sure she's a politician, but she was someone who worked in the government, Emmy Palmore, who's someone who worked in the government, and apparently she was different from everybody else. She was very helpful. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. She was helpful to, in this way, that... Uh, 
Uh, well, first of all, I think we were the only family who were constantly peppering the government with uh, uh, questions of, we wanted to be reassured that all of the talk in the media, and I'm talking about in the, uh, in the late 90s, that Israel is going to do a deal with the, with the terrorists and other terrorists in our prisons will be released was untrue. Um, each time we were either ignored or we were given nonsense answers. But the day after, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu announced the Shalit deal, which was more or less on the Erev Sukkot of 2011, uh, Emmy Palmore, who was then the head of the pardons board, phoned me, took me by surprise. I was on my, on my way to shul. My head was not thinking about those issues, though it was a depressing time. And she said, it's my sad duty to tell you that the reports are true. And in fact, she'll be walking free and I'm sorry for you. What resulted from that was a one-on-one -on -one conversation that we had, which she handed me some documents that I think are still valuable until today. One of the documents demonstrates that contrary to the things that have been said in the media, not one of these terrorists was pardoned. The pardon is a nonsense. Uh, the images which were described, written up in the newspapers at the time of, uh, our, of the president, President uh, Shimon Peres, staying up all night to sign the pardon uh, papers, it's invention, it's pure invention. Most of the documents were signed by the, um, the military. Uh, but the point about the intervention of, uh, of Emmy Palmore, who went on to become the Director General of the Ministry of Justice, was that behind the scenes, it's clear that the government of Israel had a real desire to constrain the activities of the of the terrorists by by making the commutation of sentence, which is the true nature of what happened, their sentences were were shortened to uh, you know to end immediately, was conditional, and that conditionality may become important in the future. Tamimi wasn't pardoned; she wasn't set free for the rest of her life. She was released on condition, and she breached that condition, as far as I'm concerned, the day that she walked free, before she arrived in Cairo to meet with the head of Hamas, Khaled Mashal, she had already engaged in incitement to more terror, and she, but Israel isn't after her, and that's the key point. Israel had washed its hands of her. So let's move on to the discussion about what's happening in the United States. As you mentioned, you're Australian. You said Malki was born in Australia. So what does the United States have to do with it per se? Because was she an American citizen? Yes, my wife and all of our children are American citizens. And uh, when I became aware after the Shalit deal of the way in which there's a special law that applies to American victims of acts of terrorism outside of the territorial United States, uh, I realized that there might be something we can do. I then found out that there was an extradition treaty with Jordan between the United States and Jordan. So armed with those two pieces of information, I actually got on a plane and went to Washington and made a meeting uh, together with a fabulous lawyer who's been part of our activities all these years uh, with the top leadership of the DOJ, including the FBI. Because you've raised this issue of, uh, you know, the Americanness of it, I, my opening words to that group, about 20 or 25 people in, in, in a hall in the uh, Department of Justice were, there's been a law on the books for years that says that in the circumstances that led to the murder of my daughter, an American citizen killed outside of uh, the United States by a terrorist, uh, the United States had uh, not only the right, but the obligation to go after the terrorist. And from my investigations, it's never happened even once. And I'm calling you on it. I want you to do it in the case of the murder of my child. And to their great credit, uh, there was nothing but encouragement from the people in the room. I was told that uh, they wouldn't be able to fill us in on any of the details as they were happening. And they would only let us know once the process was over, they'd build a case, they'd prosecuted it, they'd gotten the judge to sign off on an arrest order and all the rest. And I thought naively that that would be something that would happen quickly, but it took five full years. And as we now know, a lot of that time, uh, 2013 onwards, was spent just negotiating with 
the Jordanians who were refusing to honor the extradition treaty that King Hussein had signed in 1995 with the Clinton administration. And which Jordan denied even existed, isn't that right? Well, it's what you just said is literally true, but uh, in a technical sense, what the High Court, the Court of Cassation said is, yes, it was signed, which is of course true, but it contravened our uh, constitution. I'm not going to go into the details. I, I absolutely can, but that gets us off on a tangent. Uh, it contravenes our constitution and therefore it's a dead letter. Um, some months ago, my wife and I sued the United States under the Freedom of Information Act because we had become aware that that claim, that the uh, ratification of that, uh, well, I've used the word ratification, which I wasn't going to use, but I'll, I'll continue with that, that the, that the treaty had never been ratified turns out to be a nonsense. So now we have the documentation that proves that it is indeed a nonsense. What's going to happen next? Well, <laughs> I don't know. We're, we're trying to get the attention of, uh, of Blinken and Biden and, uh, and Abdullah, uh, and it's all happening now. It's a, it's a time of great stress and activity for us. Before that, back in 2017, the FBI put Tamimi on its most wanted list, offering up to $5 million for information leading to her conviction or arrest. But it went nowhere. That would sound to me like things are moving forward, but it sounds like in reality it was actually almost a dead end. Is that accurate? It is accurate, Scott, And uh, but, but there's still a couple of words of commentary that I would put on that. First is to say that I believe that the Department of Justice and its uh, law enforcement arms uh, have done everything they can do, that there was no obstacle put in their path and they've done everything they needed to do. But I believe that political pressures have prevented what needed to happen next, which was that the Jordanians would be pressured into doing something that they've done time and time again, every time they've been requested to extradite somebody under the treaty. And that is hand over to Mimi. The only question that they should have asked at that stage was, which flight would you like to be on this afternoon? But that isn't what happened. Uh, I believe that the DOJ have been honest and uh, with all of the right intentions. And I believe that there are serious issues here in the State Department and I would say in the White House as well. And before you even think of saying, I, I don't mean that, I'm being a little uh, sort of provocative. A lot of people when I get to this part of the conversation say, ah, oh, you should have pushed the Trumps. But it's not true. We were as ignored and demeaned by the Obamas and by the Trumps as I fear we may be by others as well. So yes, we're, we're pushing hard. We have a lot of friends in Washington. Uh, we've taken a lot of steps, but uh, so far there has been no pressure on the Jordanians and the king is coming there in order to have a private audience with uh, not only with the president, but with a, a long series of congressional leaders. And that just, that eats me alive. A few minutes ago, you talked about how it was claimed that should Tamimi be released, be extradited to the United States, the kingdom would fall, or Abdullah would fall, he would no longer be king. And that raises a question which might justify the United States' inaction or Israel's pushing the United States not to act. People might argue, whether it's a cold peace or not, the bottom line is that the border between Israel and Jordan is the longest border Israel has. And Israel currently has the ability not to really worry about that border as long as Jordan remains reasonably stable. From that perspective, one might argue that despite the fact that it's a complete miscarriage of justice, nonetheless, extraditing Tamimi might be uh, more trouble than it's worth, to put it in very, very crude terms. Obviously, you strongly disagree with that, and I want to hear why. I disagree with it both on the facts and on the principle. Let me start with the principle. Uh, Jordan has a treaty with the United States. Instead of saying, look, 
with all due respect, this isn't a good time for us to have to observe the treaty. They come up with a cock and bull story, which says, no, there isn't a treaty. The treaty has no effect. Uh, that's not something that strategic allies do. And by strategic, I mean allies that get $1.8 billion each year from American taxpayers. Uh, and I, I cannot understand why this has to come from the father of a murdered child and not from political leaders getting up in the Congress and saying, this is outrageous. Where is American pride? Where is the rule of law? On the facts, I think that the, the, the whole story is a lot cloudier than it's being represented. Yes, it's convenient for a whole variety of people and reasons to say, we need a stable Jordan. I'm not sure that we have a stable Jordan today. It's not an unstable place, but it has, it's one of only two countries in the Arab world where the Muslim Brotherhood are active in the parliament and they have enormous following. But a much more meaningful uh, uh, perspective though is, well, what does this tell us about terrorism? It's nice to have stable relations with a government that has an army whose, whose soldiers are basically on our border but pointing at their own people. That's nice, I can understand. I've heard that many times from people in the military establishment. But what about terrorism? Terrorism doesn't follow the same kinds of rules. And we know that there is deep attachment to terrorism among Jordanians. And uh, why are we playing with fire? At, at the end of the day, there is a right and a wrong way to deal with all of this. And the fact that no one, that no one on the Jordanian side or in the US government engages with the multinational global superpower called Fremont and Arnold Roth because of the strategic threat that we pose, tells me everything I need to know. If the argument is as good as it's represented to be, then come and sit down and talk with us. Have your ambassador take our calls. That's never happened. On a technical legal level, I realize you are a lawyer. Some people have raised the issue of double jeopardy. As you mentioned, Tamimi wasn't pardoned, but she was convicted and released from prison. So some people have said that double jeopardy in American law and American constitutional law would prevent her from being tried again for something which she was already convicted of. How do you answer that? It's one of those questions, or shaken or shalom. If that's what the law says, then there's a big problem. But the largest law firm in the United States, the Department of Justice, has looked at this inside out and had no difficulty reaching the conclusion, as indeed has every other uh, uh, extradition uh, law expert and public international law expert that I've consulted, none of them have had any difficulties. It, it, it simply doesn't work that way. A, it doesn't work when there are two different sovereign powers involved in trying to get at the, at the prison. And B, uh, the charges are different. Uh, yes, they arise from the same set of facts. That happens all the time. Um, so I have to also say the only people I've seen raise this so far are ambassadors of Jordan in private conversations and never in public, and a certain well-known Jordanian uh, uh, professor of journalism, who I consider to be a total fraud, who raises it all the time and ignores all the pushback that he's gotten from lawyers. I'm not an expert in extradition law, but I've surrounded myself with people who know the law inside out. People should be ready to push back against this. This is a total red herring. It's thrown out there in order to get people off the trail. I wonder, Arnold, if this feels like a Sisyphean task 20 years and you're still working at it. What keeps you going? Meaning, I'll put it like this. It's 20 years since the tragic events and you still are working along with Frimit to really trying to push this, which is so amazingly admirable, but the frustration must be mounting. What keeps you going after all this time? Let me first of all point out that Malki was a child and I was her father. And that creates a lot of desire to try to do whatever you can do after you've failed to keep her safe, 
to ensure that she's not forgotten. I would take the opportunity now to mention that we've also worked very hard to create a foundation in her name, the Malki Foundation, mm -hmm. which does good exactly along the lines that Malki herself did in her own lifetime. It really is a, a monument to her legacy. She had a legacy, 15-year-old with a legacy. Fighting for justice has become more and more of an imperative as I've watched the the lip service being paid by a whole range of public officials in three countries, Israel, Jordan, and the United States. Uh, as I've seen what in some circles are called the empty suits, the people with big positions, but without too much integrity inside. I call them the, uh, the empty kipot because so many of them are people who pray at the same times and in the same direction as I do. And yet for all of their rhetoric, don't seem to understand just how complicit they are in doing something that has terrible consequences. I don't feel uh, obsessive, and I assure you, and I know you're concerned about this, that I have a life. Uh, my wife and I have a rich family life. We have children and grandchildren we love and we're involved with, and we have friends. Uh, we're not obsessive, we're determined. And uh, in a certain way, I can't think of any situation in life beyond the relationship of parents in the wake of a murdered child where the fight to see justice done when you have an array of governments and diplomats and even kings telling you no 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 this doesn't happen there there is no sense in this it just makes you more determined to say oh yes 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 something awful has happened here and you're making it worse before we go i want to ask you about the malki foundation what is it and how do people reach it First of all, it has a website, www.kerenmalki.org. And what it does is really reflect what Malki did and what we as a family have done. It stands with families, and we're one of them, that are raising a child with severe disabilities in the home and want to be able to make all of the decisions and give the love that only a family can give. Israel, for all its wonderfulness, and I'm living here because I'm a, a passionate Zionist, and so is my wife and so are our children, has an awful approach to institutionalization, the last Western country to still pump large amounts of money into the institutionalization of children with special needs instead of doing the things that ought to be done. I translate that in my own terms down to we want to empower those families where the system disempowers it treats them like children. It's a noble cause. We do really good work. Uh, we provide special equipment so that people can keep their child at home. We fund 80% of the cost of uh, non-medical therapies after the kupa, the kupot, the medical system, have said no when they have to say yes under law, but they say no. We've funded close to 65,000 such therapy sessions in the last uh, uh, 20 years now. The organization, by the way, was registered on 9-11, the morning of 9-11, 30 days after Malki's murder. Uh, I'm proud of the work that's done in the Malki Foundation. I don't take a penny. My wife doesn't take a penny. I'm the honorary chair. And it really is a labor of love, just as our pursuit of justice is. So anybody who wants to give it their support will be very, very welcome. It's entirely sustained by public support. And that's just part of Malki's very real legacy. And I have to tell you, talking to you now, Arnold, you remind me a little bit of Avraham. We call him Avraham Haivri because he stood on one side of the river and the entire world was on the other side, but he was right, and ultimately his vision prevailed. And my prayer for you is that your vision prevails as well and that all of us will be able to see justice and hopefully that will bring you a measure of nechama. And I thank you so much for giving me this moving interview today and coming on the podcast. Thank you for the opportunity. Appreciate it very much.
Thank you for joining me today for this moving, painful, but very important interview. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Mamanides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like the Orthodox Conundrum podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, the Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers, including a video of this interview. And you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. And coming on Monday, July 25th at 9 p.m. Israel time, that's 7 p.m. in the U.K., 2 p.m. on the U.S. East Coast, and 11 a.m. on the West Coast, Patreon subscribers are invited to an Ask Me Anything. Write to scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com, S-C-O-T-T at jewishcoffeehouse.com, and send me questions about anything you like. Jewish topics, politics, sports, pop culture— really anything you'd like to talk about. And if you tune in, you can ask me on the spot as well. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffee House can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com. <laughs>